Sponsored by Rabbi Shlemi and Mirla Greenwald. This is a sicha from Lakota Sichas, Chedekir Aleph, Parshas Tetzava, Sicha Aleph. And the topic of the sicha is that in this week's Parsha, we learn of the command to take Shemen Zayis Zoch, Kosis Lamar, for lighting the manure in the Mishkan. And we learn the Rashi on this. And there are four parts in the sicha. The Rebbe will, number one, ask seven questions on this Rashi. Number two, present a key to what is really bothering Rashi. Number three, based on this, answer all seven questions. And number four, present the Nyanim Ufloim in Halacha and the Yena Shultera in this Rashi. On the beginning of our parsha, where it says, Va'ata Tetzav is Bnei Yisrael, and you should command the Yidin, and they should bring to you Shemen Zayis Zoch Kosos Lamar. So Rashi quotes the words and Zoch, and Rashi explains Blishmarim without sediment, like we learned in Menachis, he picks it from the top of the olive tree, Vechulu, etc. And there are seven questions here. Number one, from the fact that Rashi doesn't explain that Zach means clean. Rashi doesn't say Zach, Naki, it means clean. So this indicates that it's known that Zach means Naki. Zach means clean. And Rashi is only explaining what it's clean of. It's clean of sediment. Blishmarim, without any sediment. But the question on that is that that's obvious. Because if we know that Zach means Naki, that it's clean, obviously it means it's clean of everything, including clean of sediment. So why does Rashi have to say anything at all? Number two, later in Parshas Kisisa, we also have the word Zaka. It says Levina Zaka. And over there, Rashi doesn't say anything. And the question is, if over here Rashi has to tell us what it's clean of, also over there, he should tell us what it's clean of. Number three, and this is built on what we said in question number one, that the fact that it's clean of Shmarim is obvious, so the third question is, why is there any need for a proof to this? If the idea is so simple, why does Rashi have to bring a proof for it? And he says, Rashi does bring a proof. He says, like we learned. Why does he need this proof? Number four, Rashi doesn't bring proofs from Halacha. And Gemara talks about the Halacha. So even if a proof is needed, however, we'll explain why there's a need for it. How does it help to bring a proof from the portion of Torah that talks about Halacha to what Rashi teaches, which is Pesut HaShul Mikra? Such a proof is usually not effective because it's two different ways of learning things. So even if a proof is needed, how does it help to bring a proof from the Gemara? Number five, Rashi only quotes from the Gemara Menachas the words Megargare Beresha Zayas, that he picks it from the top of the olive tree. And he only hints to what seems to be the main word, Vekaitish, that he crushes it. That seems to be the main word. As Rashi says in the next Dibra Maschal, Vekaitish he crushes it with a crusher, which means that he crushes it, that the oil should come out. But he doesn't grind it in a mill, because then the actual pieces of the olive will go into the oil. Like Rashi says, in order that there shouldn't be shmarm in it. So it would seem that the key word to indicate that there's no shmarm in it is the word v'kaitesh. So why is it that the words that he picks it from the top of the olive tree, Rashi writes clearly? And what seems to be the main word, V'kaitesh, that he crushes it, that Rashi only hints to by saying V'chulu, etc. Number six, why does Rashi say, K'mayshe sheninu b'menachas? Why doesn't he just say, K'mayshe sheninu? 
like we learned, why does he have to mention Menachas? And this question becomes greater because in Parshas Emmer, where we also learn about this mitzvah, it says, Tzavaz B'nei Yisrael v'yikhoi lecha shemen zayizach kosos lamar. So over there where Rashi talks about the shemen, there he references both Menachas and Teres Kehanim. So how come here Rashi writes anything at all? And when he is writing something, he writes only Menachas and not Teres Kehanim. And number seven, why does Rashi also quote the words Va'ata He's only coming to explain to us what the word Zach means. And the Rebbe explains that from the fact that Rashi does quote the words Va'ata that indicates that the proof that Zach means Belishmar without sediment is from the words Va'ata And the difficulty is, how do the words Va'ata prove that? And on the other hand, if they do effectively prove that, then why is there any need to bring an additional proof from Menachas? Now we're going to move on to the key of the Sikha, which in a Rashi Sikha, the key of the Sikha is very often, as it is in this Sikha as well, the key of the Sikha is to understand that there's something here that's bothering Rashi that we weren't aware of. There's actually a question over here that we didn't notice, that that's the question that Rashi is coming to answer with his Pirashir. And what this usually does for us is two things. Number one, it then helps us understand Rashi, because when we see what it is that's bothering Rashi, then we could understand why he says what he says, because it's by saying that that he answers that question. And number two, we get to see the way Rashi answers the question, which is very often not how we understood it originally. It gives us a whole new way of understanding the discussion here in the Torah based on Rashi's explanation. So in our case, the explanation of all of this is as follows. In the Pasuk it says, Shemen Zayis Zoch Kosis. And the word kosis refers to the word zayas. What type of zayas? A zayas, that's kosis, that's crushed. And according to this, it's difficult to say that the word zoch, which is written in between the word zayas and kosis, it separates the two words, zayas and kosis, that are connected. So it's difficult to say that this word that's inserted in the middle refers to the previous word shemen, that it's shemen zoch. So then why is the word zoch in between zayas and kosis? If it's referring to the Shemen, then it should have said, Shemen Zayis Kosis Zach, which means Shemen of a Zayis Kosis, a crushed olive, Zach, and that is pure. Although we can say that it's saying the Shemen has to be number one of a Zayis, and number two, Zach, and the way it was done was through Kosis, but it's a Deichek to say that. And since it says Shemen Zayis Zach Kosis, the word Zach is in between the Zayis and the Kosis, so we should have to explain it like the Evan Ezra indeed explains it. That the word Zach does not refer to the Shemen, but rather the word Zach refers to the Zayis. So the Pasuk is saying Shemen Zayis, and about the Zayis, the Zayis has to be two things. Number one, Zach. And number two, kasis. And what does zach mean? It means it has to be an olive that's not ruined, it's not moldy, it wasn't bitten in, it wasn't bitten by a, by a bird or something else. It's a whole and non-rotting zayas. So this is what we, we would seem that we have to say. And now this leads into the answer of the seven questions. We'll see you right at the beginning. We're going to answer the first two questions. And Rashi is coming to negate this when he says, Blishmarim. That Rashi is not telling us that it means clean. He's not telling us what it's clean of. He's telling us that the word Zoch goes on the Shemen, not on the Zayas. It's going on the oil. The oil has to be Zoch, not the 
olive has to be zach, since blish shmarim can only apply to the shemen and not to the zayas. So when Rashi is saying blish shmarim, what he's saying is that the word zach means without sediment, which means it's referring to the oil, it's not referring to the olive. So that's why Rashi is telling us what it's clean of, not in order to tell us the oil is clean of of sediment, but to tell us that the word clean goes on the oil. And that's also why on Levina Zaka there's no need to explain anything. It means exactly what it sounds like, that it's clean. And now we're going to answer the last question. Why does Rashi quote the words Va'ata Tetzaveh? So in order to prove that Zach refers to the Shemen, that when it says Zach, that it's pure, it's talking about the oil and not the olive, even though it's difficult to say this, like we just said, because the way the wording is in the Pasuk, so therefore Rashi also quotes the words Va'ata Tetzaveh. Those words Va'ata Tetzaveh prove to us that Zach refers to the Shemen and not to the Zayas. How does it prove it to us? Because this command, Va'ata Tetzaveh, was given to the Yidin while they were in the desert, which is a place where olives don't grow. And so we must say that they brought oil with them when they left Mitzrayim. And it would seem the reason they brought oil and not olives is because oil could stay in good condition for the amount of time that the Yidin were in the, in the Midbar, in the desert, for 40 years, but not olives. And so if they had with them oil and not olives, so this proves that we can say that Zach refers to the Zayas, to the olive. Because here what they have in front of them is the oil. And it's impossible to determine from the Shemen, from the oil that they had, if the Zayas it came from was Zach. Now they have oil. How do they know what olive this oil came from? Was the olive bitten or not? It's impossible to ter- determine that. But they could be told, regarding the oil that they have, that it should be Zach from any sediment. So that's Rashi's proof that when it says Zach in the Pasuk, it refers to the Shemen, to the oil, and not to the Zayas, to the olive. Now we can add another point here for why Rashi quotes the words Va'atetetzavet. A Talmud Mamulach, a seasoned student, will claim that it's still better to explain that Zach refers to the Zayis, because that's how it fits better in the wording. And what about the question we just had, that there's an obligation of Zayis Zach that they couldn't do in the, in the Midbar, because they only had oil and not olives. So he'll explain that the obligation that the Zayis be Zach was only once they entered Eretz and then they could get those types of olives. And this is another reason why Rashi quotes the words since it hints to the teaching that Rashi says in Parsha's Tzav that ain't Tzav elo miyad that the word Tzav means that it's for something that's immediately now and for future generations. And even though Rashi typically doesn't refer to teachings that the student didn't learn yet, however here we're not talking about a regular student, we're talking about a Talmud Mamulach, the question of a seasoned student. And to answer those types of questions, Rashi will allude to something that we didn't yet learn. Now we're going to move on to answer questions 3, 4, and 5. So after all of this, we can say that, however, it's still not a complete proof, since we can say that the Yidin knew they would be given this mitzvah to use oil from olives that are zach, that the olives are zach, and they brought with them oil from such olives when leaving Mitzrayim. Now it's a daichik, it would seem, because it's a daichik to say that they knew this level of detail about the mitzvah. But since b'daichik, we can say this, so therefore Rashi brings a proof from what it says in Menachas. And what does he bring from Menachas? That megargerei b'reisha zayis, that he picks it from the top of the olive tree. The reason Rashi brings these words is since the olives on the top of the tree have clear oil, the oil from those olives is clear. 
But regarding the olives themselves, those olives are actually more likely to be bitten by birds. If we want olives that are zakh, it would be from the middle of the tree, because the olives on the top of the tree are likely to be bitten by birds, and the olives at the bottom of the tree are likely to be touched by people. So since it says he takes it from the top of the tree, so this fits with the shemen being zakh, since that oil is clearer, and not with the zayas being zakh. And so questions 3, 4, and 5 are answered. Why is there a need for a proof? Because there's a, something that we could say b'daychak. And that also explains why you could bring a proof from halacha. Because it's not a proof from halacha for the basic explanation of Rashi. That we have from the words v'ata tetzavah. It's only to answer a question that's, that itself is only b'daychak. And that's why Rashi quotes the words megagare berisha zayis. Because that's what indicates that the oil has to be zoch. Because that oil is better but not the olives have to be zakh, because those olives are actually likely to be bitten. And to answer our sixth question of why does Rashi say that it's taught in Menachas, you could just say it was taught, why does he have to say that it's in Menachas, especially since in Pasha's Emmer he brings the source both from Menachas and Teres Kainim. So the reason why Rashi specifies that it's in Menachas, since in Teres Kainim it brings the opinion that they crush the olives, which doesn't fit with our Rashi here that says Blishmarim. So therefore he brings the source from Menachas, where in the Mishnah over there it doesn't mention this other opinion. So Rashi is telling us that it's a Menachas and not in Teres Kainim. Since in Teres Kainim there's an opinion that doesn't fit with the way Rashi teaches it over here, that they brought oil without Shmarim. And regarding the difference between our Parsha and Parsha's Emmer, that in our Parsha, Rashi doesn't include this opinion, whereas in Parsha's Emmer he does, so this fits in our parsha, not to mention Teres Kainim, and to say that the oil was without Shmarim, which our parsha was by the Chanukah Samishkan, when they certainly did things in the best possible way. So they didn't crush the olives and have pieces of the olives in the oil, which is not so in Parsha's Emmer, but there it's not talking about the Chanukah Samishkan, there it's teaching about the Allahis with all their details, so then it's appropriate to mention more than just the best possible way of doing things, but all the different ways. So therefore Rashi also mentions Teres Kainim to allude to the fact that there are other opinions because that's what Rashi's, that's what the Parsha is doing there in Emmer, teaching us the general halachas, how it's always supposed to be and not just at the time of the Chanukah Samishkan. Now we're going to move on to what we can learn from this. So from the Nyanim of Floim and Allah that we find in our Rashi, so the Rambam rules regarding what we give to Hashem, what we give to mitzvahs, it says in the Torah that Hevel brought from the very best. That's what he brought his carbon from. And we learn from there, anything that is for the name of HaKel HaTayv, it should be from the nice and the good. If a person is building a base tefillah, it should be nicer from the place where he lives. If he feeds a hungry person, kisa arum. If he clothes a naked person, hikdish davar If he gives something to hikdish, and he concludes, and so does it say, kol chelav la Hashem. All the chelav, the very choices, should be for Hashem. There's a question over here whether if this obligation of kol chelav la Hashem also applies while preparing the item that will be given afterwards to Hashem. Like, does one have to purchase the cho- a choice piece of wool to make a garment for a person? Or does it only apply when the person's choosing which item to give? And there are two ways of looking at it. One is that the obligation of kol chelav la Hashem only takes effect at the time of giving, because that's when it's being given to Hashem. Kol chelav la Hashem is referring to when the person is actually 
ready to give it. Or we can say the obligation of kol chayav Hashem takes effect from the moment the person decides that it will be for Hashem. And even in this itself, there are two ways. One is to say that the moment the person decides that he's going to give something to Hashem, he has to make it in the best possible way, regardless of whether that benefit, the taking the better way, will have any benefit at the end. Another way is that no, that's only if at the end it will result in a better product. So we have over here two different ways of looking at it. Now according to the Evan Ezra, we see it takes effect from preparing it. Because he says the olive, the olive has to be a choice olive, even if it doesn't have a benefit in the oil that comes out afterwards. So we see that it takes it the second way, that it's even from preparing, and even when there's no benefit. However, according to Rashi, the obligation only takes effect at the time of giving. Rashi says the oil that's being given, that's what has to be pure. And there's no concern about the time of preparation. So we see over here, Rashi's opinion when it comes to Allah, that when it says, Kol Chelev Lashem, refers to what the person is actually giving, and not what the person is preparing. And now from Yenu Shaltera and our Rashi, so it's explained to the Hasidists that there are two aspects in the Zayas. There's two different ways of looking at the Zayas that are actually opposite of one another. On a simple level, the bitterness of the Zayas, it's a bitter it's a bitter food. So that represents the bitterness and darkness of Sitra Achra, of the Klippa. And it's only through crushing the Zayas that you can remove the Shemen, which represents Chachma, which is the bitter to Hashem. So if you want to successfully extract and, and, and reach Chachma and have Bittal to Hashem, it's only through crushing the Zayas, crushing the Sitra Achra. However, on a deeper level, the Zayas is the source of the Shemen, meaning that it's higher than the Shemen. It's not Sitra Achra, it's actually even greater than the Shemen itself, which is Chachma and Bittal, meaning that the bitterness and darkness represents the very high level of Keser, which is above revelation. And that's why it's called darkness, because it transcends any form of revelation. So we have two different ways of looking at the Zayas. Is, does it represent Klippa and Sitra Achra that has to be crushed in order for a person to come to a place of Chachma and Bittal? Or does the Zayas represent a level that's higher than the Chachma and Bittal? It's completely transcendent of any type of revelation, and therefore it has a bitterness, a darkness, because it can't be tasted in a revealed form. And it's from there that the Chachma and Bittal comes out. And this is the difference between the Evan Ezra and Rashi when we, talk, when we talk about on a deeper level. The Evan Ezra explains it simply, because he explains Pshat, that the darkness of the Zayis comes from Sitra Achra. And therefore, Kir has to be paid to choose a Zayis that can give Shemen. And so the Zayis itself must be Zach. We have to make sure we have a good Zayis. However, in Rashi, which is Yenushal Torah, which means you get the deeper parts of terror found in Rashi, at least are hinted to in Rashi, the deeper things shine through. And so the darkness of the Zayas relates to its high level, and therefore there's no concern by the Zayas. The Zayas, we have nothing to worry about. It's the level of Kesser. It is completely safe and protected of anything negative. It has no relationship to anything negative. It doesn't have to be protected from it. And the only concern is that the Shemen, the Chachman Bittel, that's already a revealed experience, there we are, there's a concern that it should be Zach.